0: Jacob's Wells Media presents Strange Tales from Humble Life by John Ashworth. Narrated by John McDonough. Chapter 6 Ellen Williams and the Black Man Few persons witness more weeping and tears than falls to my lot to behold almost daily but especially on the Sunday evening, when after the service at the chapel for the destitute, groups of poor, miserable, wretched creatures, homeless, friendless, and penniless, stand with dejected looks, waiting for an opportunity to speak to me. No doubt some of these pitiable objects are the authors of their own sufferings, and are reaping what they have sown— Nevertheless, there they are, human beings. Every man and woman of them are my own brothers and sisters, and the deeper they are sunk in depravity, the more they stand in need of our sympathy. One Sunday evening, fourteen of these strangers stood waiting for my appearance. Five of them consisted of a man, his wife, and three children. Three others, men professedly on tramp, two of the three without coats, four others were elderly persons, all with pitiable tales to tell, and the last two were females, one of them who was dressed in a seedy black silk had a good address. She made a nice curtsey, begged my pardon, and while wiping the tears from her eyes, assured me that she had been so deeply impressed with the service of the evening that she had vowed to return to her native place and lead a new life, but finished by requesting me to bear the expense of her journey. The last of the fourteen is the subject of this narrative. She was about forty years of age The broken bonnet on her head had once been white straw. Her shawl was thin and dirty, her printed dress in rags, and her feet almost without shoes. She was weeping bitterly, and was the only one of the whole group whose sorrow seemed to be real. After disposing of the polite woman in seedy black silk, I turned to the ragged, sobbing creature that stood waiting her turn, observing, "'Well, my good woman, you want to speak to me?' "'Yes, sir, but I am ashamed to speak to you,' was her reply. "'I suppose you are a stranger in Rochdale. Have you ever attended this place before?' "'No, sir.' "'I left Oldham this afternoon, and when I came into this town I did not know what to do nor where to go. I spoke to a lady, and she advised me to come to your chapel, and said that if I saw you after the service, you would perhaps provide me with lodgings somewhere.' "'Do you belong to Oldham?' "'No, sir. My native place is near Hyde.' "'but I have not been there lately. "'And what makes you weep so bitterly? "'Oh, sir, I was formerly a Sunday scholar and teacher, "'and regularly attended a place of worship, "'and while you were singing the first hymn tonight, "'the thought of those happy days came rushing back to my mind "'and filled my soul with agony. "'Oh, to think of what I was then!' "'and what I am now. "'Have you no relatives or friends? "'I have relatives and acquaintances, but no friends. "'What is your trade? "'I formerly worked in the mill, "'but have been out of work for some time. "'But the fault is my own. "'I think I understand you. "'Here is a ticket for a night's lodging, "'and call on me tomorrow. "'Perhaps you may get work in this neighbourhood. She called the following day, told me her name, and gave me a short account of her life, and then came out the secret of her misery and wretchedness. She was a drunken woman. A drunken woman. What a sound, and what thoughts does that sound awaken? A drunken woman, Of all the painful, sickening sights in this world, the sight of a drunken woman is the most painful, the most sickening. When a woman begins to drink, farewell to everything that makes a woman lovely. Farewell beauty, farewell modesty, farewell virtue and chastity, farewell self-respect. If she be a young woman, farewell to all bright prospects in this world. If she be a married woman, farewell all love and respect from her husband, even though he be a drunkard. Farewell all domestic joys and all hopes of prosperity. To a drunkard, either man or woman, the sun is gone down at noonday, but especially to a drunken woman. Strong as the above expressions may seem, THE FOLLOWING, I THINK, WILL PROVE THEM TRUE. ON THE SAME FORM ON WHICH ELLEN SAT THE FIRST NIGHT SHE ATTENDED THE DESTITUTE, THERE WAS AN OLD WOMAN WHO BEGGED THAT I WOULD GO SEE HER SON, WHO WAS VERY POORLY. I FOLLOWED THE WEEPING MOTHER TO THE HOME OF HER DYING FIRSTBORN, AND THERE FOUND SIX YOUNG CHILDREN SEATED ON THE FLOOR AROUND THE FIRE. "'all silent and sad. "'I spoke kindly to the oldest, "'a girl about ten years of age, "'for I remembered how the mother of these children "'had, a few weeks before, "'left them a whole day without food "'while she was drinking, "'and how this girl had found a little flour, "'baked a cake in the oven tin over the fire, "'and shared it with her little hungry brothers and sisters.' On going upstairs, I found their father in terrible suffering. The moment he saw me, he stretched out both his hands, exclaiming, Oh, sir, is not this dreadful? You have often told us at the chapel that there is enough to do on a sick bed without having to seek mercy, and now I find it true. Looking at his mother, he said, Mother, fetch all the children up and let them kneel around the bed. When he saw them all around his bed weeping, he said, "'Oh, my God, what a sight! What will become of you with such a mother? I wish we might all be buried in one grave on the same day, and then you would all go to heaven. Kneel down, my dear children, kneel down, and Mr. Ashworth will pray for you.' and for your erring mother and dying father. We all knelt down, the trembling grandmother, the erring wife, and helpless children sobbing and weeping. I closed my eyes on the scene, for I was not able to bear it, and with choking utterance pleaded with that God who hears the cries of the poor and distressed. In seven hours from that moment, the man expired, and six children were left in the care of a drunken mother. When she got the club money for her husband's funeral, she commenced drinking, and never left off until every farthing was spent. This miserable woman was a fit companion for the poor, wretched Ellen. "'And how did Ellen Williams become a drunken woman? "'Hear the answer, ye young unmarried women of England. "'Ellen kept company with a young man who was a tippler, "'who went to visit her with a small bottle of rum in his pocket "'to let her have a drop in her tea. "'And when Ellen walked out with her sweetheart, "'they often called at public houses to have just one glass.' So by keeping company with a tippler, having drops of rum in her tea, and calling it public houses on their walks, Ellen began to like drops of rum. Any young woman who goes with her intended into a public house before they are married deserves a drunken husband, and if she goes with him after, she deserves no pity. These drops of rum in tea have made sad havoc in thousands of homes. They have made myriads of thin, pale-faced, ragged children, and myriads of dirty, slatternly red-nosed mothers. A poor woman called at my door one Saturday evening to inform me that herself and children were starving. I gave her a little help and the day after, unexpectedly, called to see her. I found her and another woman having tea together, and the little pitcher with a drop of rum stood on the table. When they saw me, the faces of both were red, whether from the drop of rum or my unexpected visit, I cannot tell, perhaps from both." The following day she called again, with a large woolen stocking around her face, looking very pitiful, and informed me that she had been bad of the toothache, and that was the reason she had a little rum, and she hoped I would think nothing about it. "'But you looked very merry with your toothache when I called,' I replied. "'Why, just then I did, you see.' One cannot always be crying. While on this point, I will mention another fact. There was formerly in this town a good old man, who for many years spent the whole of his time in visiting the poor, the sick, and the dying. His name was James Nuttall, but he was best known as Jemmy Nutter. He was a good man and highly respected; his friends frequently furnished him with money and clothing to give to really needy cases, and for many years he did great good in the town and neighbourhood. Three women who wanted a drop of rum in their tea laid a deep but wicked scheme to get the money to purchase it. They agreed that one should go to bed and pretend to be very poorly. "'but as she did not look sufficiently sick as she lay in bed, "'they rubbed her face with flour, minding to lay it on evenly. "'One acted as nurse to the pretended invalid, "'while the other went to fetch Jemmy Nutter to pray with her. "'Of course the old man went, prayed with them, "'and gave the poor sick woman a shilling to get a little beef-tea. The moment his back was turned, they all burst out laughing. They had got the drop of rum for their tea. For several days I took charge of Ellen, provided her food and lodgings, and furnished her with a few decent clothes, and much sooner than I expected she got partial employment. She attended regularly all the services, and became, in appearance, a greatly altered woman. She was now an abstainer from what had been to her the greatest curse, her one besetting sin. Once again she could join in singing God's praises, and once again her face was lit up with smiles. None of my poor acquaintances greeted me more cheerfully in the street nor seemed to enjoy more the means of grace. When talking with Ellen on one occasion about her happy change, she informed me that she had got entirely rid of the black man. What do you mean by the black man? I inquired. Why, sir, when I was a drunkard and living a wicked life, I was always miserable. I did everything I could to smother my conscience and quench the strivings of God's Spirit, sinking deeper and deeper in sin. One moonlight night, as I was walking the street, more unhappy than usual, I thought there was a tall man following close behind me. I turned around and around, but still he was behind. I stood still and looked over my left shoulder and saw a sight that I shall never forget to my dying day. But I suppose it was all imagination. I don't know that. I have seen him many times since that night, always looking over the same shoulder with exactly the same terrible fierce look and awful black face. Did he speak to you, I asked? Yes, always. And he always said the same words, or nearly the same. And what are the words? He said, put an end to your life. Hang yourself. Drown yourself. Take poison. He always told me to commit suicide some way. And how did you get rid of this terrible black man, I asked. Oh, I have not seen nor heard him since I entirely gave up drink and began to pray. So long as I pray and feel that God hears my prayer, I never fear him. He is like that evil spirit mentioned in the Bible. When Jesus comes, he goes away. Either the moralist or the physiologist will be able to understand why the black man was looking over Ellen's shoulder and prompting her to self-murder. She had in the first place left the path of piety and peace, and by her wicked life disordered both body and mind and however it may seem to us who to some extent understand the real cause to ellen it had all the force of a dreadful reality to her he was a real fierce black man various minds are variously affected while under these awful influences caused by drink but in all cases it is fearful "'A few days ago a pale-faced, handsome woman came to my office "'and wanted me to hear her make a vow to God "'that she would never touch another drop of drink as long as she lived. "'I had great difficulty to prevent her going on her knees to make the vow. "'I told her that all the vows she could make to man would be utterly useless.' But if, when she felt her one besetting sin trying to get power over her, she would again and again seek help from heaven, and make her vow before God, and ask strength to keep it, there would be hope for her. She seemed in great mental agony in consequence of her last excess in drink. This same woman, a few days before, came to request I would buy a frock for her daughter, a girl about twelve years of age, that she might be decent to go to a nursing place she expected for her in a few weeks. I promised that if she would not go into a public house and leave off drink for one fortnight, I would buy her child a frock. She promised "'and at the end of the time the girl came for the frock. "'Well, my child, I wish to fulfil my promise to your mother, "'but do you not know that she was drunk on Saturday and Sunday nights?' "'The child did know, "'and I shall not soon forget the look of shame and anguish "'depicted in that child's countenance.' Oh, how I did feel for the poor thing, but I dared not trust the mother a new frock, knowing that she would have sold it for drink. When I asked the woman how she became a drunkard, she replied that for several years her husband, who earned good wages, had two or three pints of ale on the Saturday night, and every night had a pint to his supper, and she always fetched it that she got a gill for herself while they were measuring the husband's pint, and so began to like it. The same week that the sorrowing girl lost her new frock because of her mother, I was returning home about half-past ten at night, and at the bottom of Foundry Brow, or George Street, I saw a boy and girl dripping wet and both crying. "'On asking what was the matter, they told me the door was locked, "'and they could not find their mother who had the key. "'How long have you been seeking her?' I asked. "'Since seven o'clock, but cannot find her,' they replied. "'I looked the little girl in the face. "'I thought I knew her, and asked if she knew me. "'Yes,' was the answer from both. "'poor little weeping, wet, hungry, benighted creatures. "'They were seeking a drunken mother.' "'But to return to Ellen, "'none but those who watch for souls "'can form a right conception of what I feel at this moment. "'Whilst I am attempting to depict these facts, "'the whole circumstances pass afresh before me. "'My scripture reader informed me that he thought he had seen Ellen in questionable company, and that he was afraid she was again neglecting her duties. I had myself missed her from some of the services, but as she had been so orderly and regular for many months, I thought there was a reasonable cause. But one Sunday morning I met her in the street, and then at a glance saw how matters stood. She tried to avoid me, but I at once crossed the street and met her face to face. "'Ellen, you are not looking well. Surely you have not forsaken us and are losing all you have recently gained by your good conduct. How is it you have such a strange appearance? You seem as if you had not been in bed last night.' Poor Ellen was speechless.' She hung down her head and tried to hide her tears. You will soon see the black man again, I am afraid, Ellen. She threw up her arms and with a wild look exclaimed, He is with me now! and ran swiftly away from me. Here I must make a confession, and I do it with bitterness and sorrow. A few weeks before the period of which I now write, Ellen was again out of work, and I had to render her a considerable help. One day she came to inform me that she could have a nursing place to do nothing but take care of two or three children, if I would merely say in a note or by my visitor that I knew her. She got the place, but had I known what I do now, she must not have gone. A man whose name, for the sake of his father and grandfather, I suppress, found out the woman's weakness, tempted her, promised her marriage, and induced her to live with him. They sinned and drank together. Once or twice she came to the chapel on Sunday, and sometimes on the week evening, but she was a greatly altered person. Both myself "'and scripture-reader tried to reclaim her, "'but she avoided talking with us and still went on drinking. "'One Sunday evening I stood at the chapel door "'when Ellen was entering. "'She came up to me and in a strange, careless manner said, "'The black man is behind me. "'Do you not see him? "'He has been with me all week.' and he follows me wherever I go. As I was passing over the wood bridge last night, he said, "'Now, now, this is a nice spot for you to drown yourself. Do it now, do it now!' And if the person had not come past at the time, I should have done it, for I felt as weak as a child and had no power over myself.' "'But you told me that you always got rid of the black man "'when you gave up drink and prayed earnestly. "'Have you given up praying, Ellen?' "'Yes, I seldom pray, "'for the black man laughs at me and says it is no use. "'And all the way he has kept saying, "'You need not go to the chapel. "'It is no use, no use.' Have you had drink today? You seem as if you had, Ellen. Not much, and the black man persuaded me. What must I do? Remember me in your prayers tonight, for I feel as if I could not pray. She then moved on into the chapel. Poor Ellen! It was no wonder she could not pray. She was living in sin and knew it. To be indulging in anything that we know to be sinful, to sin when we know we are sinning, and yet pretend to pray, is mocking God. Whoso confesseth and forsaketh his sins shall have mercy. But it is declared that if we regard iniquity in our heart, God will not hear our prayer. "'and that is the reason why thousands pray in vain. "'They acknowledge their sins, but do not forsake them. "'This was Ellen's case, and it was this that had brought her to the dreadful condition she was now in. "'The man who induced her to leave her place of service very soon turned his back upon her and left her to herself.' for some time she rambled about the town without any settled residence, and at last went to live at number 14 Greenwood Street. I often saw her pass my office, and every time she seemed sinking deeper and deeper, her appearance was rapidly becoming what it was the night she was weeping at the destitute. Drink she was determined to have at any and every cost— and the last time I had any conversation with her she told me that the grinning, fierce black man was almost always with her, urging her on to commit self-murder. One night she remained out drinking very late. When she returned to her lodgings she was wild with excitement, exclaiming, "'He will finish me yet!' "'He will finish me yet?' "'Who will finish you?' "'What do you mean?' asked Mrs. Cartwright, "'the woman with whom she lodged. "'The black man, the terrible black man. "'Do let me go to bed and come, "'kneel down and pray for me.' "'God will not hear either your prayer nor mine.' "'We are both too bad for that,' said Mrs. Cartwright.' bursting out weeping. "'Pray, pray, do pray,' cried Ellen. "'The black man will go away if we pray.' They both knelt down. Ellen was miserably drunk, and her wild screams were awful, and the whole of that night was an awful night. In the morning she began to sing a strange wild song— so strange, plaintive and melancholy were the words in the tune that to use Mrs Cartwright's own words they made her weep and the flesh creep on her bones. A short time after the wild plaintive song was finished, Mrs Cartwright heard an unusual sound, and running upstairs, she found Ellen on the floor in the agonies of death. She had taken strong poison, and in a few minutes was a corpse. Poor Ellen, thy voice, now silent, once sweetly mingled with the thousands of the Sabbath school, and joined the praises in the house of God. Then happiness was thine, but thou forsook those paths of pleasantness and peace. Thy one besetting sin withered and blasted all thy hopes, and in thy wild despair thou perished, madly perished by thine own hand, and now thou art gone, gone down to thy grave in darkness. Drink, and the fierce black man have done their work. Poor Ellen Williams.